Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. For my 83rd episode of Classical Ideas, I spoke with Andrea Miller, an editor at Lion's Roar, writer, Buddhist, and traveler, who recently published the enchanting and delightful children's book, The Day the Buddha Woke Up. That book became the first story my own child heard about Buddha. I'd imagine that book is the first story many children will see and hear about the life of the Buddha, and the depictions in that book, in the artwork, will be what many children remember about the likeness of the Buddha as they grow up. The art in Miller's book was done by the artist Rima Fujita, a painter, sculptor, education, philanthropist for children in Tibet, and Buddhist who grew up in Japan, New York, and is now based in California. Her work, based on her dreams and experiences in meditation, are deeply moving, I had never seen art like Rima's until I read The Day the Buddha Woke Up, and then I became hooked on her online galleries on Instagram and her website, rimafujita.com. The Dalai Lama calls Rima an artist who creates beautiful art. I couldn't possibly agree more. You can write to me, if you like this show, at classicalideas at outlook.com. You can find me on Twitter at classical underscore ideas or on Facebook at Classical Ideas Podcast. I'd also be delighted if you could take a moment and give me a rating on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get this podcast. Without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Rima Fujita. Rima Fujita, thank you so much for coming on Classical Ideas. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. Thank you. I'm so glad. That I could feel your excitement coming through as well. I love it. <laughs> Can you tell the audience a little bit about who you are and what you do? Okay. My name is Rima. I was born in Tokyo, grew up in New York City. I'm an artist. I'm a full-time artist. I'm so lucky. And I also write books, and I'm a founder of books for children. Wonderful. Okay, so I want to go back in time a little bit to kind of set the stage for your artwork. What are some of your earliest memories of being an artist? Like, what were some of your early inspirations, 
um, and who inspired you as well? Mm-hmm. Well, I'm an only child. So growing up, I spent a lot of time alone and I really enjoyed it. And I just love to draw. So I can remember drawing, not being told by, by, I mean, nobody told me to draw. I just uh, voluntarily started to draw when I was maybe three or four. And I would just draw anything. And then um, by kindergarten, I was sketching already. I would just sketch whatever I see around me, like a cup or a plant or anything really. And I was so into it. And I was, I remember being frustrated because I couldn't draw really well. And I was drawing and drawing and drawing. And then um, um, it was, it was painful, but at the same time, no one asked me to do, I just wanted to do it. So I guess I was born as an artist Mm -hmm. and my grandfather was a good artist, but he was not a professional or anything, but he would draw like beautiful drawings for me when I see him. And then that really inspired me. And then my parents took me to all these art shows and art exhibitions of masters from all over the world. So I, I think I was, Somehow I always knew I was going to be an artist. I was an artist already. Were, were these experiences, were these years in New York City? So when I was 13, I went to New York City because of my father's business. He was a businessman. And I went to high school there. And I, eventually I attended Parsons School of Design. So, But during my high school, I, I already knew that I was going to be an artist. So I, I only applied um, art schools, but I went to a prep school. Most kids went to Ivy League schools, <laughs> and I was the only uh, student who applied art, uh, art schools. So, Excellent. Yeah. Okay, so that's kind of like a nice little artistic background. How And you have so many religious themes and spiritual themes running through your, your work these days. Um, how was your spiritual life um, developing as you were uh, growing in your artistic pursuits as well? Good question. Thank you. Um, I grew up in a non-religious family. My parents were very scientific. So uh, I didn't have any particular religion growing up. And when I was in uh, in New York, now I live in Los Angeles, but I, I, when I was in New York many years ago, like 25 years ago or, or 30 years ago, I met Tibetan monks and it totally changed my mind. I had never met Buddhist monks like that before. Like in Japan, I, I don't want to, this is a very general uh, comment, but Buddhism in Japan is corrupted, unfortunately, and I have never met respectful uh, Buddhist monks in Japan. And in New York, I met some Tibetan monks who are very close to the Dalai Lama, and they just blew me away. And that made me really interested in Buddhism, 
because my background is Buddhism. I mean, my family uh, has been Buddhist for many years, many centuries. And, uh, but somehow it didn't really mean much to me growing up in Japan. So in New York, I encountered Tibetan Buddhism and I started to study. And eventually it became such a, an, a big, important element in what I do as an artist. Excellent. So your your website, um, you have an artistic statement that mentions that you are hugely inspired by Buddhism and Bushido within your art. Um, can you tell me a little bit about that Bushido lineage that inspires your art as well? Yes. Um, so my ancestors, both of my parents, uh, were the last samurais. I'm sure some of you have seen the movie. Sure. <laughs> well, they were my ancestors. So growing up, I heard a lot about um, about my ancestors, how dignified they were, how um, how disciplined they were, and especially my grandmother. Every time I went to see her, she would just talk about it all the time. And as a as a child, it was a boring thing, you know. Mm-hmm. So. Um, but then later, I started to learn more about Bushido. Bushido, it means a way of the warriors. So um, I'm, I'm very influenced by that, that philosophy, not that I do any martial art or anything, but it's more of the attitude of how I work. Like, for example, um, the Bushido it has eight concepts at eight elements like for example justice courage mercy politeness honesty honor uh, loyalty self-control so to me they really um it's like a value system almost yes so those values very uh, go along with buddhism that i study and so what I try to do is I have those values when I work as an artist. I try to be sincere and I try to be honest, either when I work alone or with other people. I try to respect and like small things, respect the deadline or, <laughs> or honor their values or opinions, you know, whatever, the small things. But those eight values I, I uh, try to work with um, and try to live with every day. So in that sense, I'm very influenced by the, by, by the Bushido values. Wonderful. And there's a style that you mentioned as well on your website, and it's something that's brand new to me. I don't even really know how to say it. Is it Nibiro? Nibiro. Okay. Yes. What is that? Tell me about it. I'm curious about this style mm-hmm. because your art looks like something that I've never seen before. Right. And so I'm curious if you can just kind of tell me a little about that. Sure. Nibiro is, uh, it literally means dark gray. And uh, even in Japan, not many people know about this. But I heard this story. I don't even know if it's true. But I heard this story that when you go to the uh, Shangri-La or heaven, and when you combine all, when you combine everything that exists in Shangri-La, the color, 
all these colors become Nibiru, this beautiful dark gray, almost black. And this, this myth or this story totally fascinated me because I work on the black surface. And I lay colors on the black surface and leave the lines, which is – so in other words, I lay colors on the surface of black and I leave the lines – so the, the lines are the colors of the, of the surface, which is black. In other words, I don't, I don't draw lines. Mm. So to me, it's, it's, most people work on the white surface, but I do reverse in a way. To me, it's almost like putting the lights on something which already exists, but you cannot see because it's dark. So I work from my dreams. Everything I paint comes in by, into my dreams. I remember those visuals. But it's not like I see, let's say I see a flower in the dream and I, I draw a flower. It's not like that. I see my finished paintings in my dream before I paint, I paint them. Okay, so... And you also mentioned on the website that meditation, as well as the dreams, really inspire your work. Now, this is all making a lot of sense to me because I have been looking at your work and reading it in the last few months. And so I'm curious of how the process of how, a, how when you have a dream or a period of meditation, how that specifically inspires a piece of artwork. So I wonder if we can go into that a little more. How do you capture those moments when you have them like do you paint right when you wake up right after you meditate how do you get that crystal clear vision down onto a canvas or whatever kind of uh, surface you're working with so first of all i don't sketch i remember every detail that i uh i remember every detail of the paintings i see in my dreams so you know, people ask me, don't you forget? I'm like, no. <laughs> so I have no sketches. I don't do any sketches. I just go on, uh, write directly on the, on the canvas or paper. Um, sometimes I wait for three days. Sometimes I draw right away. I paint right away. But it depends. But... My point is, I don't have I don't have to document my dreams in order to remember. Hmm. They're they're so clearly in here, and it's hard to forget. And the colors are so intense in my dreams that it's hard to relive that colors, recreate those colors. Yeah, it's it's amazing. It's special. It also seems like it might be kind of scary. Is it overwhelming at all? Because your artwork is so vivid. Do you is it is it like overwhelming to think about? Like, do you ever wake up and you've had one of these uh, dreams and it's almost just like too much? Yes, I've had dreams where the colors are so intense and vibrant. Nothing you've seen in this world. Right. Yeah. And I'm like, oh my god, this is too much. Yeah. In the yeah. dream, I'm saying th- I'm saying this is too much, so um, it's usually like that. So I don't know where they come from. I don't know how, but uh, that's how I've been working uh, all for all these years. 
what's your workspace like? Where um, do you have a studio that you work in? Do you work yeah. at home? Like, how do you? What's your space like? Um, my second, the second floor is my studio uh, of where we live, and uh, quiet, big, it's nice. <laughs> Excellent. Okay, so. I found your work from a past guest that's been on this show, somebody that you've collaborated with, Andrea Miller, and together you two uh, released the children's book, The Day the Buddha Woke Up, featuring your artwork. And this is the first time I'd seen your work, and Andrea was very, very um, encouraging, telling me to reach out to you and to have you on the show, because your style is so fascinating. So when this book arrived, I realized that I had never seen artwork like this before in my entire life. For all the reasons you just mentioned, um, it's brand new to me. And because you are in a children's book, I'm curious how you feel about the idea that many, many, many young people right now, their first association with the Buddha growing up will include your artwork. Tell me about how that feels. First of all, it's great. It was wonderful working with Andrea. I knew her um, from uh, her magazine. She interviewed me for her magazine before. That's how we knew each other. But um, so when she told me that she wanted to do this children's book, uh, yes, uh, on Buddha, I said, yes, definitely. And she said, it's a board book. And I, I don't have children, so I didn't know what board book was. <laughs> so she had to explain to me. I said, square, hardcover, great, sounds fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> um, first of all, um, I don't like most of the children's book in the market. I don't like those cutesy, cartoonish uh, drawings for the kids. When I was a child, I read so many children's books, but the the ones I remember are very um, beautifully illustrated, not like a cartoon cutesy stuff for the kids, but they almost talk to me like an adult. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, when I studied children's book uh, at Parsons, I remember our professor told me, do not treat children like kids. Don't underestimate them. You know, they understand much more that, uh, than what you uh, than you think. So that stayed as my motto for all these years. So just because it, it's it's for children. It's for children. I do not change my art because I'm a Buddhist. I, I believe in uh, rebirth. Yeah. You know, children are children now, but they were not children before. Their souls are old. <laughs> yeah. So you have to communicate with them, not as kids, but as, as beings and especially visual things. Maybe language, yes, they have to learn, you know, how to speak, how to read. But visual, it goes way back. Their souls understand. So I like the fact that for this uh, book with Andrea, I didn't change any of my style. Um, They're beautiful, I hope, exquisite. Um, so to me, this book is not just a board book for children, but it's like a beautiful poetry book for adults. 
Yeah. Well, and what's so neat about it is it doesn't matter if your work is hanging in a gallery or in the board book, you get the you get that same intensity of the product. And so for people who may want to check out your book, I mean, even if they're in their 40s or 50s, they could still get the board book and it's almost like getting a little art gallery in your hand, you know? Um and I noticed you dedicated the artwork in the book to anyone who wants to awaken. So I'm curious if awakening is like a guiding force and a motivation in your artwork in general. Um, what do you think about that? Well, I'm a Buddhist, so of course I I enjoyed uh, making this book of life on Buddha. But my intention was not to preach people about his teachings i believe that buddhism is is more of a way of life and rather than religion because i don't know there's no god it's it's all about yourself right it's all about self if you want to change your life you're the only one who can do it and just do it yourself so but that's all it may sound hard for some some people but at the same time it gives hope to every living being it's up to you you have the potential so and for children i think it was it was so important to to convey the message of compassion uh, and of course buddha's teachings are known for mainly compassion and wisdom but for small children, I think compassion, the teachings of compassion is very essential, you know, because that's something they can relate, even as young kids. Yeah. So, yes. Well, your book is also my, my daughter is five. And so your book is my daughter's first book that will depict the Buddha. So... I think that's pretty fantastic. And, you know, she's got some other um, board books, like one about Islam, and she's got a few with uh, Hindu deities and yours on Buddha. So my daughter growing up, whenever she visualizes Buddha, it will be this Nibiru artwork that you have created, which is so cool. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I know you work in sculpture a little bit as well, right? How long have you been sculpting? Oh, um, it, uh, I can't remember. I've, I've, I do a lot of stuff, you know, and uh, sculpture is uh, totally another um, world, but I enjoy it. Excellent. And uh, yes. When you get an idea, do you have a clear image of if it should be like a painting versus a sculpture or some other medium? Like, do you immediately know or how does that process play out? Yes, yes. Uh, there are two types of artists. One is like, you know, you kind of go along as you do it and you don't know what you're creating, but you just explore. My, my way is a little different because the way I work from my dreams and meditations, when I sit at my studio, I know what I'm doing. It, I just, uh, manifest whatever the vision I saw in my dreams. So... I never like go like, oh, 
where should I paint this or should I paint this part pink or I don't work that way. And I don't remember the, the process much. Like at the end of the day, I finish painting, I look at my piece, I don't remember how I did it. It's almost like I go, I go into a trance. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I have to put the timer because time flies and then, you know, I, when I realize five hours have gone by and my back hurts. Yeah. So I have to put the timer like every two hours or so just to make sure I stretch or, you know. So it's a very um, strange process. You know, I went to the New Yorker Literary Festival back in October, and I was in the audience for a Japanese novelist named Haruki Murakami. And Murakami said something similar to where when he's writing a long novel, he goes somewhere else. And at the end of it, he's able to come back. But when he rereads the things that he's written... It's almost brand new to him when he's reading it back to himself. Is it? Do you kind of get the same impression on your work? Yes, I think these this process would give you the best work. Like for example, when I think too much, my head is like leading. My piece never comes out right. I never like it. But when I almost like forget something, I, I become the channeler of something. Mm-hmm. And I'm just a, a vehicle, um, but something else is painting in me. Those moments, I think this kind of moment is the best. I agree. It's like you're a yeah. conduit and you're just almost out of control. Yeah. But see, I think it's good because art is just a tool. To me, art is not a goal. It's just a tool. Because when I was young, like a young student, art student, my goal was to to be successful, become a famous artist, make a lot of money. <laughs> but I didn't know what that meant. We all had that dream. Sure. It was so vague. And uh, But then I had a very successful start as an artist. I was miserable. I was making tons of money. But I was dealing with not very nice people in the art world. I hated it. I hated every day. I didn't know what else to do because I was an artist. So I didn't know what to do. But then I think it was 1993. I heard this voice in my dream. And it commanded me saying, you must help Tibet. Mm. And I didn't know where Tibet was. I didn't even know who the Dalai Lama was. I was so ignorant about the whole cause. So I spent a whole day in the library on 42nd Street, the New York Public Library. And I learned about Tibet and, and oh my gosh, it was mind-blowing. But then I said, what can I do as an artist? You know, I'm not a movie star. I'm not a billionaire. What can I do? And then I started to meet Tibetans. I had never met Tibetans before in New York. It was the weirdest thing. One thing led to another. Boom. I had a whole support system to create something. And then one day, I just I was talking to a Tibetan refugee friend, and he said, oh, when I was a refugee in South India, we didn't have a book. We didn't have no book. We had no food. We had nothing. And then idea just struck me like a thunder 
And I said, I'm going to make children's books for the Tibetan refugee kids and print them in Tibetan because they're they're losing their culture and, and unique language. And this and this resulted in a in an organization that you run called Books for Children on Earth, right? Yes. Yes. Um, and how long have you been doing that now? Since ninety three? When did it really take off? Uh, two thousand one, I think I um, I made the first book. It took many years to prepare because um, I <laughs> so I wanted to make a folk tale. St- uh, I wanted to make a Tibetan folk tale uh, children's book, but I didn't know any folk tales. So I asked around Tibetan people, "Do you know any folk tales?" Nobody knew. So I I sent out literally 500 letters to all these organizations around the world, Tibetan organizations. Can you tell me some folk tales? Nobody wrote me back. And then maybe a year later, I got two letters saying, oh, thank you for your letter, but we don't know any folk tales. (laughs) So, So it took me some years to collect, I mean, the stories. So everything took time. Everything took so long, but then um, so far I've made nine books, and some of them were collaborations with um, Tibetan government in exile, and some were my own, but uh, I've donated more than 12,000 copies to exile. Mm -hmm. And this is where you sort of built a relationship with His Holiness the Dalai Lama, right? Yes. There's a picture on your Facebook page that I saw, right? And it is you leaning into the shoulder of His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, and he's embracing you back, and it's very striking. And I also enjoyed the portrait of His Holiness that you painted that you can actually, like, buy as, like, postcards on your website. Um, And so talk to me about your relationship with His Holiness, how you met him, how your relationship with him has progressed over the years. Mm-hmm. So I think it was uh, 10th anniversary of Books for Children. I was uh, offered uh, an audience, official audience with His Holiness. So I presented myself and uh, I, um, I reported him what I do and he really congratulated me. And then that was the first time officially I met but I always, I always met him briefly uh, every time he visited New York. So, but that was the official, first official uh, audience. Um, the, the funny thing is that um, nowadays I meet him uh, at least once, twice a year. And uh, I think by now he knows who I am. <laughs> <laughs> but um, every time we meet, he, he sees me and he says, oh, New York, New York. Like when we meet in Japan, he calls me New York. Yeah. We meet in New York, he calls me, oh, Japan, Japan. <laughs> so at one point, I think it was uh, during the audience in Dharamshala at his residence. He was so confused. He said, where do you live now? <laughs> he had to ask because we always meet in different cities. Um, but um, the best uh, best moment in my life was... Um, when he complimented me uh, with uh, the best moment in my life was when he complimented my work. 
he said, you're an artist who creates beautiful work. He said that uh, straight to my eyes. And then that meant more than anything, like any exhibitions I had, any critics. I mean, it just meant so much to me because um, he's the source of my inspiration. Wonderful. Um, I'm curious if you can also talk a little bit about when pilgrimage and going to um, sacred sites of Buddhism entered your life. When did you first start going on pilgrimages? The first time I went to Sarnath was probably early 2012 or so. Uh, I go to India a lot, but I I had never done a pilgrimage before. And then um, I think it was three years ago, my best Dharma friend, Eric Repair, is um, a good friend of mine. He's my best Dharma friend. He's a three Michelin star uh, chef in New York. He said, look, I want to go to the pilgrimage. Just let's go. So three of us. Eric, me, and another star chef, uh, uh, Laurent Manrique from San Francisco. He's also a Michelin star uh, chef. Three of us went. But we're, we're crazy Americans. We, uh, <laughs> <laughs> we went to all these Buddhist sites in 10 days. Yeah. I mean, oh, my gosh, because we're all busy. We can't. I mean, the ideal is to spend months and months in those places. Right. But... I have to tell you a story. Sure, let's do it. So the whole trip for 10 days, I kept crying. I cried all day. I just wept, wept, wept. And people ask me, what's wrong with with her? And those French chefs, ah, oh, she's just happy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I didn't know why, but I couldn't stop crying, especially in Bugaya. So I'm not saying this because I'm a Buddhist and it was just so wonderful to be in, in Bugaya, the birth, uh, not the birthplace, um, where Buddha got enlightened. That place has this special, magical um, energy. I'm, I'm telling you, it's really true. I, I can't, I've had never experienced anything like that before. It's almost like the whole city is wrapped around by this sweet veil. Mm. That's exactly how I uh, I describe. And then I saw one of my teachers there. He's a Tibetan monk. He's a geshe. A geshe is a, a Buddhist. Uh, a, geshe means PhD in Buddhism. Oh, right. Yes. So my teacher met me there. He lives in India usually in Dharamsala. And I, I told him about this special energy and how fortunate I was. And he said to me, Rima, I know you're very happy here, but you must share the joy. Think about, think about those thousands of people who want to be here but cannot come. So you're, you have a mission to share this joy with with the people who cannot come or who, um, you know, you can't just hold on to this joy by yourself. That was his, uh, his advice. 
So as an artist, it was important for me to somehow um, convey this experience into my art and then so that more people can enjoy the same experience I have through my art. Do you have any specific pieces that you did after that trip that people could look up uh, that were directly inspired by being in Bodh Gaya? Yes. Um, so there's one piece called I Want to Be With You. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a painting of a Buddha with a, uh, with a dog. And that was something I actually saw in Bodh Gaya and I experienced. And that image of the painting came into my dream later. So I painted it, but uh, hopefully people can feel the sweetness of that place, this very loving energy that Bodhgaya has. Wonderful. I know you're also friends with the renowned Buddhist scholar Robert Thurman, right? Um, And I know that I saw him giving a talk about one of your pieces on YouTube, which was super cool. And I know that you recently had a 25th anniversary solo showcase in the fall. Um, Can you tell me a little bit about some of your favorite public showings as an artist and how you, you know, try to demonstrate some of these fantastic things that you've done? So I show in New York, L.A., Tokyo uh, every year. Um, not in three three cities every year, but mostly those uh, cities are the the my my venues. I had wonderful, great shows everywhere. Um, I can't even just pick one. Do you have a favorite? Like, do you have any favorite galleries that you've worked with? I've one of my uh, most memorable memorable events was at uh, Ruby Museum. Uh, Don Rubin gave me this beautiful openings and and a beautiful party and and Richard Gere came and and oh, cool. was, everybody everybody was there. It was just so wonderful. Tibet House is uh, a very respectable uh, uh, Tibet House is a very respected museum in in the world. They you know. Of course, run by Robert Thurman. I yeah. love that place. And in Tokyo, I have a I have a great gallery. And uh, but again, um, art exhibition are not the where you you ex- exhibit is not the most important thing. The important thing is the message of what uh, you convey through your art and. I'm not very, um, I'm not very a big fan of the art world in general, especially today. I think uh, people should have more confidence in in their own taste and buy what they like rather than what what <laughs> commercial galleries push you to buy as an investment. That will help local artists more artists in the world who are extremely talented but not discovered. Um, I think art world has lost its very important essence to support the artist and uh, really enrich enrich the art, artistic path of the creators. 
So, but that's a that's a whole another issue we can talk about. Sure. <laughs> what do you think that um, art is doing well to offer human beings in 2019? Why does art still matter so much to you? Because it's uh, again, it's a tool. Art is a very powerful tool. It when people are ready to look at those messages. There are a lot of powerful arts that people look away from because they're not ready to face the truth. Mm, I agree on that. Mm -hmm. But artists have been always the brave ones to put out the truth on canvas or sculptures or, or, or in writings or anything. So a lot of times uh, we're ahead of time. A lot of times we don't fit the current trend. A lot of times our voice voices are not ready to be heard, but our job is to keep creating no matter what, because we're, we're not business people who tend to create what people want. We are the opposite. So it's very painful to be, art, uh, to be an artist. I've been really lucky to be a full-time artist because some people really, uh, understand what i'm saying or like what i'm saying but um, yes what's what are you what's inspiring you right now what are you working on that is pushing you in new ways at the moment my current project is um uh, i'm working on the life story visual life story book on his holiness the dalai lama so his confidence uh, requested me to create a book a visual book and it's taken me so long in a way it's I think it's been two years since they asked me because this book has to be so um, special I just don't want to do a mediocre work and uh, there are many books on his holiness's life so how to make it more unique or different, it's also challenging. I hope that you'll consider coming back on the show whenever that book is released. Oh, yes. I would love to. Absolutely. Awesome. Okay. Well, Rima, um, I am hoping that you can tell people where to find your work if they want to know more and they want to find out some of the wonderful things that you're doing. Oh, thank you. I have a website, which is uh, rimafujita.com. It's just my name. So, and I'm on Instagram, Facebook. So, I love your I love your Instagram because you have that photo of you and Eric Repair, um, the chef at Bodgaya. And so, I'm so glad that you told that story because uh, whenever I saw that photo, I've seen Eric on TV so many times, and I'm really glad that. Uh, you got to tell about that because that's so cool. Because I think a lot of people will know who he is as well. Yes, yes, of course. Do you have any um, exhibitions or shows or anything coming up in 2019? I have a big show coming up in fall in Tokyo. Wonderful. Yes, yes thank you. <laughs> well, great. Okay, well, Rima Fujita, it has been an, a wonderful pleasure having you on Classical Ideas. I really look forward to seeing your future projects and maybe also seeing an exhibition in L.A. or New York sometime as well in person. And I look forward to speaking to you again sometime in the not-too-distant future. Thank you so much for having me. It was wonderful. 
Classical Ideas is produced by me, Greg Soden. Music on Classical Ideas is composed and performed by Derek Strybig. You can find his music at www.wearewarmmusic.com. If you like this show, please rate it on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can email me at classicalideas at outlook.com or find me on Patreon at patreon.com slash classicalideaspodcast. Thanks so much for listening.